Redeemer family, if you have your Bibles, I'd invite you to turn to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3. If you want to put your, your hands on Colossians 2 as well, uh, because I think Colossians 2 actually informs the commands that we see laid out in Colossians 3. And so notice the beginning phrase in Colossians 3 verse 1. Paul says, if then you have been raised with Christ. So if you think about the resurrection of Jesus, uh, it's improper to only look upon his resurrection and stop there and to not think about our own. And so look at Colossians 3, I'll read verses 1 through 17. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ and God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another, in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father, we turn our hearts to your word, and it has been said that man shall not live by bread alone, but every word that comes from the mouth of God. We eat food, and it nourishes our body. Without food, our bodies waste away. Jesus is saying that without your word, our souls will wither. And so, Father, I pray that you will feed your flock through your word, that they would grow into the one after whose likeness we are being remade. Father, be pleased to work through your servant for the good of Christ, that your name will be praised. We ask this in his name. Amen. So, um, there are some things that are vital for thriving. I, I've entitled our time today in God's word, Jesus is alive, now thrive. 
He's alive. Now thrive. I think thriving is at the heart of humanity. Think about living in New York City and not knowing how to navigate the subway system. It is over for your pocketbook to pay Uber everywhere and to get taxis. Uh, your income will diminish uh, significantly. But the subway system, it allows us to navigate and to move. Think about uh, bird watching. I was with someone in the church and he's into bird watching now and he has binoculars and an app on his phone and, and he's looking at birds with binoculars and when he hears their chirping, he's able to identify what kind of bird this is and register it. Think about the person who wants to garden and, and plant and, and grow things. Think about gardening and planting without miracle grow, without root stimulator, without netting that protects your crops from the deer. Think about the person who is into cycling, right? And I mean cycling, cycling, with like the tight compression clothing to make them aerodynamic, right? I'm talking about the pedals that they get, not just the regular pedals that regular people drive, they gotta clip themselves in. And I've fallen because I was, forgot I was clipped in, right? But why? why? Why pedals that clip you in? Because they want to gain power not only on the downstroke. They want power on the upstroke as well. Think about the person who gets into running. You get an app and it'll teach you how to do a couch to 5K. You'll go to Fleet Feet and let them look at your stance and your gait and give you shoes that fit your foot. Why do we do all of this? because we wanna thrive. We don't just wanna ride, we wanna ride fast. We don't just wanna run, we wanna run well. We don't just wanna be in New York, we wanna navigate it wisely. You see, thriving is, is embedded in the hearts of humans. It is behind ingenuity, it is behind uh, research. It is in behind inventions. And you know what? I think the same thing is true for the Christian life. On the one hand, when Paul looks at this church at Colossae, he doesn't just want them to survive. Punch your ticket. Jesus died for your sins. Now bear it through this life because everything good is happening in the next. That is not Pauline theology. His theology is that you can thrive now, like right here. Look at what he prays in Colossians chapter 1, verse 9. I mean, it, when I read this, man, it hit me like a weight of bricks. Listen to this. And so from the day that we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you, one, may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Two, so that you may walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. Three, fully pleasing to him, like, like fully pleasing to the Lord, that he looks at you and he is fully satisfied with you. Bearing fruit in every good work, like every single one of them. Fruit bearing, increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened not with a little bit of power, he says, with all power, according to his glorious might, for all endurance and all patience with joy. Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. 
in Colossians chapter 2, I'm praying that you might reach the riches, not of a little bit of assurance. He says, I want you to have full assurance now. Y'all see that? That I ain't punched my ticket till I get to heaven and then it's going to be good there. That is like thriving, breaking into your life right now. Right here. I don't know about y'all, but I want it. I want to grow in the likeness of Jesus. I want to grow in his power at work in me. I want to grow in joy when things are hard. I want to grow in endurance when I'm tempted to cower and run away. I want to grow in thanksgiving unto God, even when circumstances don't look like they're worth praising him. That's the thriving life that Paul prays for them. And, and, and it's ours. It can be ours. In Jesus. So what's, what's the clipless pedal for the Christian life? What's the subway system for the Christian life? What's the miracle growth for the Christian life? What's the shoes fitted perfectly to the ark on your feet for the Christian life that enables you to thrive and to run well? What is it? Now, before I tell you what it is, I'm going to tell you that it will be resisted. And that's the first point. Your thriving will be threatened with a hellish resistance. Your thriving will be threatened with a hellish resistance. You got to know the, 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 the shape of the letter. Paul, he prays this. He asks God for this. Then he moves into this beautiful ode to Jesus Christ. He breaks out in praise. He is the image of the invisible God. He is the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, things unseen, rulers and thrones and dominions and authorities, all things created through him and for him. And he is before all things. In him all things hold together. He is the first one to be born from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Paul is like giving us a beautiful biblical Christology. He is basically saying, Jesus is it. And then he moves Did you catch what happens? Like right there in chapter 2, verse 4, he says, look, I say all of this that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. So he's already saying, I've been telling you all of this good stuff, and just know that you're hearing this thriving that I want for you, but just know that it's going to be resisted. Look at what he says in chapter 2, verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy, and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. Look down at chapter 2, verse 16. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink and festival and new moon and Sabbath. These things are a shadow of the things. But look at verse 18. Let no one disqualify you insisting on asceticism and worshiping angels and going on in details about their visions and their hidden knowledge. You hear what Paul is saying? They want to take you captive. The thinking and logic and rulers of this world, that if they can't stop the Lord Jesus from rescuing your soul, they are out to make your Christian life a living hell. 
I love what Eugene Peterson says about this. Watch out for people who try to dazzle you with big words and intellectual double talk. They want to drag you off into endless arguments that never amount to anything. They spread their ideas through the empty traditions of human beings and the empty superstitions of spirit beings. But that is not the way of Christ. Everything of God gets expressed in him so you can see him clearly. You don't need a telescope or a microscope or a horoscope to realize that the fullness of God is found in Christ. It's in him. And notice what Peterson talks about. He doesn't just say the traditions of humans and the worldly wisdom of humans. That that language of elemental spirits. Scholars are divided. Some of them say these are the rudimentary principles of the world, the A, B, and C's, and others say, no, no, no. This is something way more sinister. These are evil, elemental spirit beings, and would be another label for celestial godlings. In 116 and 215, these heavenly powers are part of creation and exercise regulatory control over nature and rule a world corrupted by sin. I understand these to be demonic spirits to which humans have foolishly given their allegiance in all. Acts chapter 7, verse 42. You hear that? It's not just humans that want to captivate us. It's not just humans advancing knowledge that is against the lordship of Christ. It's not just YouTubers posting videos that are against the knowledge of Christ. It's not just your homeboy who now he's woke and he's telling you all this stuff that you've been discipled in is foolish against the knowledge of Christ. He's actually saying there's something beneath all of that. It is satanic and it is from the pit of hell. And the reason it is there, it is to dethrone or try to dethrone the beauty and the excellency and the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. And we don't know the the crafty ideologies floating around in Colossae, that it feels like it's a hybrid, a hybrid of pantheism, a hybrid of angel worship, a hybrid of Judaism around circumcision. It feels like there's some ethnocentrism because Paul is saying, hey, that might be true out there about Jew and Greek and slave and free and barbarian and Scythian, but not in the body, that we can't carefully construct what was going on. But here's what we do know about what was going on and what they were being faced against. It was to pull them away from the supremacy of Jesus. You need Jesus, but you need this other little stuff, right? Or if you really want to have a mystical experience, you got to have this hidden knowledge. Or, I mean, they were not satisfied with the sufficiency of Christ. And the attempt was to pull them away. And we live in a day and an age, anyone can get a YouTube channel. Anyone can get a Facebook handle. Anyone can buy a website and proclaim themselves knowledgeable. And what Christ is saying, we got to have discernment. If it doesn't move me towards the beauty of Jesus, it's moving me away.
and there is no thriving disconnected from him who is the head. Now, we're threatened, which moves us to our second point. Your thriving will begin as we rehearse our union with Christ. Your thriving will be threatened, but it will begin as we rehearse our union with Jesus. It's been said that in Ephesians, the most famous words in the book is, but God. But God, being rich in mercy. You get the human condition of us being dead in our sins, following the course of this world, following Satan, following this world. But God, because he's abundant in mercy, that he stoops in. I want to submit to you that there are another two words that are equally important, and they're in Christ. In him, with him, from him. Those two words are beautiful. Kevin DeYoung says that the doctrine of union with Jesus is so common in the New Testament that we easily miss it. Over 200 times in Paul's letters and more than two dozen times in the writings of John, we see expressions like in Christ and in the Lord or in him. We are found in Christ, Philippians 3.9. We're preserved in Christ, Romans 8.39. We're saved and sanctified in Christ, 2 Timothy 1.19. We walk in Christ, Colossians 2.6. We labor in Christ, 1 Corinthians 15.58. We obey in Christ, Ephesians 6.1. We die in Christ, Revelation 14.13. We live in Christ, Galatians 2.20. We conquer in Christ. Romans 8 37 and that's just to name a few now did you notice how our passage began it began if then which I would rather translate it since then since then since you have been raised and there are those two words right there we just read right past it but it's right there since you have been raised with Christ now, the reason you got to understand the flow of the book is because this is Paul's way of saying, hey, I just told you something back here. And since what I told you back there is true, you can now go do what I'm about to call you to do. And so this, this since then, since you have been raised with Christ, it makes us have to go back into the letter to see what is he talking about. This is shorthand for this idea that he just explodes in chapter 2. So look at chapter 2, verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition. But notice right there in verse 9, here it is, for in him, underline it, in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also, again, he's adding, in him, in Jesus also, you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off of the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ or from Christ. You have been buried with him. With, there it is again, with him in his baptism in which you were also raised with him. So the raised with him in chapter two points us to the raised with him in chapter three. 
You see what Paul is doing? He said the way that you're going to thrive is union with Christ. Rehearse that. Meditate on that. Cherish that. Now, what does he say about them? First, he says, you're full in Christ, and you lack no good thing. If Paul is talking about demonic spirits who have traces of divine attributes in them, what Paul is actually saying, they got traces. But in the body of Jesus, you got fullness. The fullness of the Godhead has dwelt inside the body of Jesus. And guess what? You have been filled in him, which means there ain't nothing new they can teach you that you don't already have in Jesus, which means you're going to judge angels one day. So why listen to what they're saying right now? You're full already. He says, you have been circumcised with a far greater circumcision. There are those in the church who have a Judaistic bent, and they're telling you, you need Jesus plus this other sign. And Paul is like, bruh, get out of here with that. Think about circumcision. It goes all the way back to Abraham. God made covenant to Abraham. I will bless the nations through you, through your offspring. The world will be blessed. And Abraham didn't believe. And so God says, okay, I'm going to give you a covenant sign right in the place where every day you look down, you'll see I'm going to be faithful. And Abraham was supposed to circumcise all in his household. And then Moses, you get that? He almost got himself torn up because he didn't circumcise his son. And so circumcision was supposed to be done unto these boys by the men as a marker. And then Deuteronomy tells us what it signifies. It signifies a cutting off of the flesh. It signifies uh, loving the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. And then Deuteronomy 30 says this. One day, the Lord is going to circumcise your heart. And your offspring. Whoa, did we just read that right? What these earthly men were doing, Deuteronomy says, it's a pattern until the one day when the substance comes, when God Himself will circumcise your heart and you will be enabled to love Him with your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And here's what Paul is saying you got that circumcision. Ain't no earthly person circumcise you. You have the circumcision that has been done by Christ, and it is far more sufficient than just cutting off of skin. Do you not know that when Jesus circumcised you, he circumcised your body of death? And you were united in him. And the day that you believed, there was a funeral for your old man and your old woman. Jesus put it down and put it off. And then as God raised Jesus from the dead, God didn't leave you there. 
He raised you in the newness of life, being remade not after the first Adam, but after the image of the second and the greater one. And your life now, look at what Paul says in chapter 3, verse 3. Your life now is hidden with Christ. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Y'all hear that? That's Paul's way of saying it's signed, it's sealed, it's delivered, it's done. You are new. And one day when Jesus returns, your future glorified self will be with him and you will get to not only see but become everything God has been working on before the foundations of the earth. You're secure. No one is enthroned above him. Paul is saying that what he calls us to do in the rest of chapter 3 it flows out of what he has already done. Does not this knowledge give you joy? That salvation is bigger than you're a sinner. Jesus died to get you to heaven. John Frame says, think about it in this way. God chose you in Christ before the foundation of the world that you would be holy and blameless. You were in Christ even before you were actually redeemed. You were in him from eternity past and will remain in him into eternity future. Before the creation of the world, you existed in the mind of God as an idea. But even as an idea in the mind of God, you were the object of the love of God. And God planned to create you and to give you life in history. And even when you live parts of your life in rebellion and spiritual death, you were nonetheless in Christ and surrounded by God's love. You have been elected in Christ, adopted by Christ. You have been redeemed in Christ. You've been justified in Christ. You will be sanctified in Christ and you will be glorified in Christ. That is knowledge too high for us. And that is what Paul prays. He says, I pray that this knowledge of this beautiful and big and loving and powerful and merciful God will take root in your heart. And from it, when we can see his majesty and his beauty, it'll change us. Does not patience spring up in your soul? Does not joy spring up in your soul? When you discern that the record of debt that stood against you has been nailed to the cross, do you not feel empowered that the same spirit that quickened Jesus from the dead is the same spirit in your heart quickening you and I to walk in the newness of life? Does this not result in cascading thanksgiving unto God? 
used to love G.I. Joe as a kid. At the end of G.I. Joe, there would be this segment where there's this lesson that, that one of the soldiers is teaching a kid. And it would always end it with, now you know, and knowing is half the battle. That's what Paul is saying. Before I tell you what to do, you need to know what God has done. You're empowered to do what God calls you to do only in response to what God has done. Now, which moves into our last point. What, what is the other side? Your thriving will happen as you work from your union with Jesus and not for your union with Jesus. Back to what Paul prayed. I want you to have joy, all joy. I want every good work to bear fruit. I want you to be growing in knowledge. I, I want these things. And here's the question. What are the good works where God is calling us to bear fruit? What good works that God looks upon and he smiles and he is pleased? It's right here in chapter 3. These are the works. Forgiving, clothing ourselves with love and compassion, using our tongues to edify and not tear down, that these are all the good works that God wants in the heart of the believer. Now, this is where I think the logic matters. If you were building a home, right, the first thing you do is you would clear the ground, and then you would probably pour the slab, and as you're pouring the slab, you're roughing in your plumbing, and once you get the slab done and everything is built kind of on top of that, you frame it out. And as you frame the outside, you then put the roof on it and frame the top. And once you frame the top and the sides, you now come back in and you run the rest of your plumbing and the, the rest of your electrical. And then you put up your drywall, right? That there's a process and your, your floors are last. There's an order that matters. You can't put your brand new hardwood floors on top of a foundation without a frame, without a roof. It, it would be a disaster. There's a logical order that Paul is flowing. He's saying the foundation of thriving is your union with Christ. And now that Christ is above and you've been raised, he's saying seek the things that are above where Christ is. Well, Paul, how do I seek you get to chapter, verse 2. You seek by setting your minds on things above, not on things on the earth. You used to use your minds to think about evil and how to execute evil. You were hostile in mind, says Paul, but not anymore. You have a redeemed mind, and you can fix your thoughts upon things that are above. There's new research that says the average person has 6,200 thoughts in a day. 
We used to think that number was much larger. Now they've come up with something called a thought worm. And they're measuring our thoughts, not the thoughts themselves, but they can see brain activity when thoughts move. So when, when, you, when you go to another thought, it does something. And so what they're doing now is they're able to track the number of times it moves. And so that number's at 6,200, right? And what Paul is saying is if you had an Excel spreadsheet with time, location, and what you're thinking about, and you were to look at that for a whole day, and sure, there's work to do, there's briefs to read, there's email to respond, there's dinner to cook, there's hobbies to do, but what Paul is saying in that 6,200, Things above. Not just how to make money. Not just how to seek pleasure. Things above. And the things that we do that, that are on the earth, they're viewed in relationship to the things above. So our thought lives. And it's inevitable, right, that once you start to think about the beauty of Jesus, the patience of Jesus, the sexual purity of Jesus, the contentment of Jesus, the humility of Jesus, the love of Jesus, the beauty of his new kingdom, that as we start to think on these things, then something's going to happen. We're eventually going to think and see the ways in which we're not like him. And notice what Paul says, therefore put to death what is earthly, not in somebody else. I mean, they need it too, but he says in you. And so follow the logic as we're thinking and savoring and, and turning in our minds, God and his kingdom, we're going to see some beautiful things, but we're also going to be confronted with some ugly things in us. We're going to see our own sexual impurity, our own misuse of our tongue, our own divided loyalties, our own covetousness, our own idolatry, that we're going to start to see these things bubbling up. And it reads as if in verse 11 that it's not just lying, it's not just sexual morality, it's not just passion, not just evil desire, not just covetousness. But in verse 11, there appears to be some ethnocentrism, racism, classism, whatever you want to call it. Because Paul says here, here in Jesus, there is not Greek and Jew, not circumcised and uncircumcised, not barbarian, not Scythian, not slave, not free. But Christ is all and in all. And when we see ourselves going down these paths, where we're partial, these paths where we're prejudiced. Paul says, what do you do when you start to see the thinking of the world, the thinking of the earth, the priorities of the earth coming back upon you? What do you do with it? He says, you take it out like it's stinking trash in your house. He says, you take it off. In COVID, and I've heard from some of you that one of the things, one of the rhythms that the new rhythm that many of us embraced was if we work outside and deal with the public and you're in hospitals, right? 
or you're in pharmacies, or you, you are teaching, or you are doing any grocery store, wherever, that, that as you go out into the public, here's one thing COVID taught us, is when I walk in my door, I got to come out these clothes, because I don't know what's on these clothes. I don't know if I'm carrying disease on these clothes. And so the practice for many of you was in the peak of COVID, you walk into the house, you strip at the door, and you go get yourself cleaned up, and then you walk into your house new. God is saying, that's the way we ought to treat our sin. It's filthy. It's unbecoming. And God says, when we see it, take it off. Before the desires become actions, take it off. Own it for what it is and turn from it. And then look at what he says. And this is, I think, one of the most beautiful passages in the book. He says, put on then, right? Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, what you see in Jesus. Compassion and kindness and humility and meekness and patience, bearing with one another. If you have a complaint, forgiving one another as the Lord has forgiven you, right? And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. But notice what he calls them. He just said up there in chapter five that you have discerned and you have fallen short of the glory of God and you have sinned and stained your garments. You would think that he would call you something else than what he calls you in chapter verse 12. He says, put on then. You're still God's chosen. You're still holy and beloved. That's the gospel. Because you're in Christ, even when you do fall short, the Father does not see you for what you did. He still sees you in light of what Christ has done. And he still calls you holy. He still calls you my beloved. And he says, put on what you have been setting your mind on from the beginning. And that is Christ. And this is the good work. The good work is when you sin, repent, turn from it, put it off, and walk in the newness of life. The good work is forgiving. The good work is using edifying speech. The good work is covenanting with your eyes to not look upon a person in a certain way. The good work is not using your heart to move and do evil, but to think and dream of ways to be a blessing. The Father looks at all of that and he smiles because it's happening in and through his son. And we do this today, and we do it tomorrow, and the next day, and one day, this cycle will be broken. You won't have sin to put off. You will be made just like him, and you will be glorified. And your future glory selves 
which began to thrive here will thrive forevermore in the new heavens and the new earth. We can thrive. We can have joy. We can do good deeds that bear fruit because Jesus is alive and we are in him and there is none greater than him. Let's pray. Our Father, I pray for a thriving in our flock. And Father, I know that Easter is a day when people come to church. Father, I would, be, I would pray that if, this, if there are people here who've come to a church but don't know the Christ that we proclaim, Father, I pray that today would be a day of salvation. May we all marvel that we're in you. That as Marcellus prayed, that you made the one who knew no sin to become sin, that we in him might become the righteousness of God. Father, I pray that, and I pray that your spirit who raised Christ from the dead would be raising our children and visitors, and Lord, perhaps even those members who uh, may not truly know you. May today be a day, Lord, where your spirit rescues. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand.